Chapter 4 of The Last Secrets by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The Mountains of the Moon. Twenty four centuries ago, a line of Aeschylus, Egypt nurtured by the snow, embodied a geographical theory which descended from heaven knows what early folk wandering. Aristotle, with his mountain of silver, from which the Nile flowed, continued the tradition in literature. Meantime, Sabaean Arabs, trading along the east coast of Africa, and making expeditions to the interior, came back with stories of great inland seas and snow mountains near them. What they saw may have been only Kilimanjaro and Kenya, but the popular acceptance of their reports points to the earlier tale linking the snows with the Nile Valley. Greek and Roman travelers spread the rumor, and presently it found its way, probably through Marinus of Tyre, into the pages of the geographer Ptolemy. Ptolemy had no doubt about these snows. He called them the Mountains of the Moon, and definitely fixed them as the source of the river of Egypt. For centuries after him, the question slumbered, and men were too busied with creeds and conquests to think much of that font of the Nile which Alexander the Great saw in his dreams. When the exploration of Equatoria began in the last century, the story revived, and the discovery of Kenya and Kilimanjaro seemed to have settled the matter. It was true that these mountains were a long way from the Nile watershed, but then Ptolemy had never enjoyed much of a reputation for accuracy. Still, doubt remained in some mines, and explorers kept their eyes open for snow mountains which should actually feed the Nile, since, after all, so ancient a tradition had probably some ground of fact. Speke, in 1861, thought he had discovered them in the chain of volcanoes between Lake Kaibu and Lake Albert Edward, but these mountains held no snow. He received a hint, however, which might have led to success, for he heard from the Arabs of Unyamwezi of a strange mountain west of Lake Victoria, seldom visible, covered with white stuff, and so high and steep that no man could ascend it. In 1864, Sir Samuel Baker was within sight of Ruanzori and actually saw dim shapes looming through the haze, to which he gave the name of Blue Mountains. In 1875, Stanley encamped for several days upon the eastern slopes, but he did not realize the greatness of the heights above him. He thought that they were something like Elgon, and he christened them Mount Edwin Arnold, a name happily not continued, but he had no thought of snow or glacier, and he disbelieved the native stories of white stuff on the top. In 1876, Gordon's emissary, Jesse, recorded a strange apparition like snow mountains in the sky, which his men saw, but he seems to have considered it a hallucination. Stranger still, Emin Pasha lived for ten years on Lake Albert and never once saw the range, a fact which may partly be explained by his bad eyesight. Runzori keeps its secret well. The mists from the Semliki Valley shroud its base, and only on the clearest days, and for a very little time, can the traveler get such a prospect as Mr. Grogan got on his famous walk from the Cape to Cairo. A purple mass, peak piled upon peak, black streaked with forest, scored with ravine, 
and ever mounting till her castellated crags shoot their gleaming tops far into the violet heavens the true discoverer was stanley who in eighteen eighty eight suddenly had a vision of the range from the southwest shore of lake albert everyone remembers the famous passage quote, while looking to the southeast and meditating upon the events of the last month my eyes were directed by a boy to a mountain said to be covered with salt and i saw a peculiar shaped cloud of a most beautiful silver color which assumed the proportions and appearance of a vast mountain covered with snow following its form downward i became struck with the deep blue-black color of its base and wondered if it portended another tornado then as the sight descended to the gap between the eastern and western plateaus i became for the first time conscious that what i gazed upon was not the image or semblance of a vast mountain but the solid substance of a real one with its summit covered with snow it now dawned upon me that this must be Ruanzori, which was said to be covered with a white metal or substance believed to be rock, as reported by Cavalli's two slaves. Stanley had neither the time nor the equipment for mountain expeditions, though to the end of his life Ruanzori remained for him a center of romance. It was his dear wish, as he told the Royal Geographical Society shortly before his death, that some lover of alpine climbing would take the range in hand and explore it from top to bottom. In 1889, one of his companions, Lieutenant Stairs, made an attempt from the northwest and reached a height of nearly 11,000 feet. Two years later, Dr. Stuhlman, a member of Emmons Expedition, made a bold journey up the Butago Valley on the west, discovered the wonderful mountain vegetation, and nearly reached the snow level. In 1895 came Mr. Scott Elliott, who was primarily a botanist, but who, in spite of a bad malaria, managed to struggle as far as 13,000 feet. Then followed troubles in Uganda, and it was not till 1900 that the work of exploration was resumed. To make the story clear, it is necessary to explain that the range runs practically north and south, and that, at about halfway, it is cut into by two deep valleys, the Mobuku running to the east and the Butago running to the Semliki on the west. Fort Portal at the northern end is the nearest station, and as from it the eastern side is the more accessible, it was natural that the Mobuku Valley should be chosen as the best means of access. In 1900, Mr. Moore reached its head and ascended the mountain called Kianja to the height of 14,900 feet. He had no sight of the range as a whole, but he believed this to be the highest peak and put the summit at about 16,000 feet. In the same year, Sir Harry Johnson followed this route, he ascended to a height of 14,828 feet on Kianja and saw from the Mobuku Valley a mountain to the north which he named Duwoni. He came to the conclusion that the highest altitude of the range was not under 20,000 feet, and in this view he was followed by other travelers like Mr. Wild, Mr. Grogan, and Major Gibbons, none of whom, however, actually made any ascents of the peak. 
The first serious mountaineering expedition was made in 1905 by Mr. Douglas Freshfield and Mr. A. L. Mum, who suffered from such appalling weather that they had to give up the attempt. Being experienced mountaineers, however, they reached some valuable conclusions. From the plains, they had a clear view of the tops and ascertained that the mountain called Kianja at the head of the Mobuku Valley was certainly lower than a Twin Peak snow mountain beyond it, to the west. They also placed the extreme height of the range at no more than 18,000 feet. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Barons of the Anglo-German Boundary Commission had made an elaborate triangulation and gave to the twin tops of the highest peak altitudes of 16,625 feet and 16,549 feet, measurements, let it be noted, which were only a few hundred feet out. One other expedition, which occupied the close of the same year and the beginning of 1906, deserves mention. A Mr. A. F. R. Wollaston of the British Museum party found an old ice axe in a hut probably left by Mr. Freshfield, and with a few yards of rotten rope set off with a companion to climb Kianja. He reached a height of 16,379 feet and also climbed a peak to the north, which he believed wrongly to be Duoni, and which now very properly bears his name. The whole performance was a brilliant adventure, and Mr. Wollaston has published the story of his travels in a delightful book. Such was the position when, in April 1906, the Duke of the Abruzzi and his party left Italy to solve once and for all the riddle of the mountains. The Duke was perhaps the greatest of living mountaineers. As a rock climber, his fame has filled the Alps, and no name is more honored at Courmayeur or the Montevert. He had led polar expeditions, and he had made the first ascent of the Alaskan Mount St. Elias. His experience, therefore, had made him not only a climber, but an organizer of mountain travel. It was to this latter accomplishment that he owed his success, for Ruanzori was not so much a climber's as a traveler's problem. The actual mountaineering is not hard, but to travel the long miles from Entebbe to the range, to cut a path through the dense jungles of the valleys, and to carry supplies and scientific apparatus to the high glacier camps required an organizing talent of the first order. The Duke left no contingency unforeseen. He took with him four celebrated Courmayeur guides and a staff of distinguished scientists, as well as Cav Vittoria Sella, the greatest of living mountain photographers. So large was the expedition that 250 native porters were required to carry stores from Entebbe to Fort Portal. It was not a bold personal adventure like Mr. Wollaston's, but a carefully planned scientific assault upon the mystery of Ruanzori. The Duke did not only seek to ascend the highest peak, but to climb every summit and map accurately every mountain, valley, and glacier. The story of the work has been officially written, not indeed by the leader himself, who had no time to spare, but by his friend and former companion, Sir Filippo de Filippi. It is an admirable account, clear and yet picturesque, and it is illustrated by photographs and panoramas which have not often been equaled in mountaineering narratives. The charm of the book is its strangeness, 
it tells of a kind of mountaineering to which the world can show no parallel when lhasa had been visited ruinsori remained with the gorges of the brahmaputra one of the few great geographical mysteries unveiled happily the unveiling has not killed the romance for the truth is stranger than any forecast if the mountains of the moon are lower than we had believed they are far more wonderful here you have a range almost on the equator rising not from an upland like kilimanjaro but from the albertine depression which is six hundred or seven hundred feet below the average level of uganda a range of which the highest peaks are a thousand feet higher than mont blanc which is draped most days of the year in mist and accessible from the plains only by deep-cut glens choked with strange trees and flowers the altitude would in any case give every stage of climate from torrid to arctic but the position on the line adds something exotic even to the familiar mountain sites draping a glacier moraine with a tangle of monstrous growths and swelling the homely alpine flora into portents the freakish spirit in nature has been let loose and she has set snowfields and rock arites in the heart of a giant hothouse the duke of the abruzzi was faced at the start with a deplorable absence of information even the season when the weather was most favorable was disputed mr freshfield following sir harry johnston's advice tried november and found a perpetual shower bath warned by this experience the duke selected june and july for the attempt and was fortunate enough to get sufficient clear days to complete his task though he was repeatedly driven into camp by violent rain another matter in doubt was the best means of approach to the highest snows the obvious route was the mobuku valley but by this time it was pretty clear that kianja the peak at its head was not the highest and it was possible that there might be no way out of the valley to the higher western summits still it had been the old way of travelers and since the alternative was the butago valley right on the other side of the range the duke chose to follow the steps of his predecessors just before butiti got his first sight of the snow and made out that a double peak which was certainly not johnston's duwani was clearly the loftiest duwani came to view again in the lower mabuka valley and the site combined with the known locality of kianja enabled the expedition to take its bearings duwani was seen through the opening of a large tributary valley the bujuku which entered the mabuku on the north side between the portal peaks now it had been clear from the lowlands that the highest snows were to the north of duwani and must consequently lie between that peak and the mobuku valley the conclusion was that the bujuku must lead to the foot of the highest summits while the mobuku could not the discovery was the key to the whole geography of the range but the duke did not at once act upon it he wisely decided to explore kianja first so thinning out his caravan and leaving his heavier stores at the last native village he with his party pushed up the mobuku torrent the mobuku valley falls in stages from the glacier and at the foot of each stage is a cliff face and a waterfall the soil everywhere oozes moisture and where an outcrop of rock or a mat of dead boughs does not give firmer going it is knee-deep in black mud the first stage is forest land 
great conifers with masses of ferns and tree ferns below and above a tangle of creepers and flaming orchids at the second terrace you come to the fringe of alpine life here is the heath forest of which let the narrative tell Quote, trunks and boughs are entirely smothered in a thick layer of mosses which hang like waving beards from every spray cushion and englobe every knot curl and swell around each twig deform every outline and obliterate every feature till the trees are mere mass of grotesque contortions monstrous tumefactions of the discolored leprous growth no leaf is to be seen save on the very topmost twigs yet the forest is dark owing to the dense network of trunks and branches the soil disappears altogether under innumerable dead trunks heaped one upon another in intricate piles covered with mosses viscous and slippery when exposed to the air black naked and yet neither mildewed nor rotten where they have lain for years and years in deep holes no forest can be grimmer and stranger than this the vegetation seems primeval of some period when forms were uncertain and provisory but the third terrace is stranger still there one is out of the forest and in an alpine meadow between sheer cliffs with far at the head the gorge of bujongolo and the tongue of the glacier above it but what an alpine meadow Quote, the ground was carpeted with a deep layer of lycopodium and springy moss and thickly dotted with big clumps of the papery flowers pink yellow and silver white of the heliochrysum and everlasting above which rose and tall columnar stalks of lobelia like funeral torches besides huge branching groups of the monster senecio the impression produced was beyond words to describe the spectacle was too weird too improbable too unlike all familiar images and upon the whole brooded the same grave deathly silence it is a commonplace to say that in savage africa man is surrounded by a fauna still primeval but in these mountains the flora too is of an earlier world that strange world which is embalmed in our coal seams under the veil of mist among cliffs which lose themselves in the clouds the traveller walks in an unearthly landscape with the gaunt candelabra of the senecios the flambeaux of the lobelias and the uncanny blooms of the helichrysa like decorations at some ghostly feast the word helichrysa calls up ridiculous theocritian associations as if the sunburnt little creeping gold of sicily were any kin to these african marvels our elders were wise when they named the range the mountains of the moon for such things might well belong to some lunar gorge of mr wells's imagination beyond kianja the duke found a little lake where a fire had raged and the senecios were charred and withered it was a veritable valley of dry bones bujongolo offered the expedition a stone heap overhung by a cliff and there the permanent camp was fixed among mildews and lichens and pallid mist and an everlasting drip of rain five weeks were passed with this unpromising spot as their base the first business was to ascend kianja 
This gave little trouble, for the ridge was soon gained, and an easy arit to the south led to the chief point. The height proved to be 15,988 feet, and the view from the summit settled the geography of the range and confirmed the duke's theories. For it was now clear that the ridge at the head of the Mobuku was no part to the watershed of the chain, and that the Duwani of Johnston was to the north, not of the Mobuku, but on the Bujuku. The highest summit stood over the west, rising from the cool at the head of the Bujuku Valley. The duke saw that they might also be reached by making a detour to the south of Kianja and ascending a glen which is one of the high affluents of the Butagu, the great valley on the west side of the system. It may be convenient here to explain the main features of the range, giving them the new names which the expedition invented and which are now adopted by geographers. Kianja became Mount Baker, and its highest point is called Edward Peak after the then King of England. Due south, across the Freshfield Pass, stands Mount Luigi de Savoia, a name given by the Royal Geographical Society and not by the Duke, who wished to christen it after Joseph Thompson the Traveler. Due north from Mount Baker, and separated from it by the upper Bujuku Valley, is Mount Speak, the Duwani of Johnston with its main summit called Vittorio Emmanuel. West of the gap between Baker and Speak stands the highest summit of all, Mount Stanley, with its twin peaks Margarita and Alexandra. North of Mount Speak is Mount Emmon, and east of the latter is Mount Jesse. Five of the great massifs cluster around the Bujuku Valley, while the sixth, Mount Luigia de Savoia, stands by itself at the south end of the chain. The assault on Mount Stanley was delayed for some days by abominable weather. At last came a clear season, and the Duke, with his guides, crossed Freshfield Pass and ascended the valley at the back of Mount Baker. There they spent an evening which showed what Ruanzori could be like when clouds are absent. They found a little lake, embosomed in flowers under the cliffs, and looking to the west they saw the sun set in crimson and gold over the great spaces of the Congo forest. Next day, they reached the call which bears the name of Scott Elliot and encamped on one of the Mount Stanley glaciers at the height of 14,817 feet. At 7.30 on the following morning, they reached the top of the first peak, Alexandra, 16,749 feet high. A short descent and a difficult piece of step-cutting through snow cornices took them to the summit of Margarita, 16,815 feet, the highest point of the range. Quote, they emerged from the mist into splendid, clear sunlight. At their feet lay a sea of fog, an impenetrable layer of light, ashy white cloud drift, stretching as far as the eye could reach, was drifting rapidly northwestward. From the immense, moving surface emerged two fixed points, two pure white peaks, sparkling in the sun with their myriad snow crystals. These were the two extreme summits of the highest peaks. The Duke of the Abruzzi named these mountains Margarita and Alexandra in order that, under the auspices of these two royal ladies, the memory of the two nations may be handed down to posterity. Of Italy, whose name was the first to resound on these snows in a shout of victory, and of England, 
which in its marvelous colonial expansion carries civilization to the slopes of these remote mountains it was a thrilling moment when the little tricolor flag given by h m queen margarita of savoy unfurled to the wind and sun the embroidered letters of its inspiring motto ardisi espera the conquest of mount stanley was the culminating point of the expedition after that the topography being known it only remained to ascend the four massifs of speke emmon jesse and luigi di savoia in addition the bujuca valley with its tributary the Megusi, was thoroughly explored the aim of the duke being completeness many of the peaks were ascended several times to verify the observations there is an account of how from one peak in a sudden blink of fine weather the leader saw two portions of the expedition in different parts of the range moving about their allotted tasks the result of this wise organization is that today the world knows every peak glacier and valley in ruanzori far more minutely than many habitable parts of the east african plateau the expedition was not only a fine adventure but a wonderful piece of solid and enduring scientific work no englishman will grudge that the honors of the pioneer fell to so brilliant a climber and so unwearied a traveler as the duke of the abruzzi the italian name has always stood high in mountaineering annals and the duke has long ago earned his place in that inner circle of fame which includes mummery and guido Rey, moore and zigsmondi the riddle of equatorial snow has been solved and there is nothing very startling in the answer the upper part of the mountains has no marvels to show equal to the giant groundsels and lobelias and the forests of heath on the lower slopes the glaciers are all small without tributaries as in norway and there are no real basins but merely a sort of glacier caps from which ice digitations flow down at divers points all the same the glacier formation is more respectable than mr freshfield thought for he saw only the small ice stream at the head of the mabuku and was not aware of the much greater one from mount stanley which descends to the upper bujuku valley the limit of perpetual snow is about fourteen thousand six hundred feet mr freshfield was so struck by the small size of the mabuku torrent where it issues from the glacier and by its clearness that he thought it must come from some underground spring rather than from real melting of the ice he maintained that tropical glaciers were consumed mainly by evaporation and only in a small degree by melting the duke has however made it clear that the glaciers of ruinzori are subject to the same conditions as those of the alps and that their streams are true glacier torrents the limpidity of the water he ascribes to their almost complete immobility which means that there is no grinding of the detritus in their beds on the whole the range offers no great scope for the energies of the mountaineer the ice and snow work is easy and even the huge cornices such as are found on margarita are fairly safe for the climber owing to the way in which they are propped by a forest of ice stalactites caused by the rapid melting of the snow on the other hand there is an abundance of rock climbing of every degree of difficulty for the mountains below the snow line fall very sheer to the valleys luigi di savoia emmon and jesse are virtually rock peaks an isolated summit mount cagni is holy rock 
and there are fine rock faces on Mount Baker and the Edward and Savoya peaks of Mount Stanley. I doubt, however, if Ruinzori will ever be a center for the rock gymnast. The weather would damp the ardor of the most earnest habitué of Chamonix or San Martino. A few hours of sunshine once a week are not enough in which to plan out routes up cliffs whose scale far exceeds the measure of the Alps. The Grepon or the Drew would have long remained virgin if their crags had been forever slimy with moisture and draped in mist, and the climber had to descend to no comfortable Montenberg but to a clammy tent among swamps and mildews. And yet those peaks remain almost the strangest of the world's wonders, and their ascent will always be one of the finest of human adventures. They are mountains of the moon rather than of this common earth. The first discoverers brought back tales which were scarcely credible. Ice peaks of Himalayan magnitude soaring out of flame-colored tropic jungles. For long, mountaineers were consumed with curiosity as to what mysteries lay behind that veil of mist. For all they knew, equatorial snow might be difficult beyond the skill of man, and ruin Zori the eternal and unapproachable goal of the adventure's ambition. The truth is prosaic beside these imaginings. Any man who can afford the time and the money, who selects the right time of year, and is sound in wind and limb, can stand on the dome of Margarita. But the experience will still be unique, for these mountains have no fellows on the globe. There is a certain kinship between the tale of the first ascent of Mount McKinley in Alaska and that of the Duke of the Abruzzi. That gaunt icy peak is as unlike the ordinary snow mountains as Ruinzori. The climb began from the glacier at a height of a thousand feet, and nineteen thousand feet of snow and ice had to be surmounted. The Alaskan giant and the mountains of the moon stand at opposite poles of climate, but both are alike in being outside the brotherhood of mountains. They are extravagances of nature, molded without regard to human needs. For mountains, when all has been said, belong to the habitable world. There are barriers between the settlements of man, and from their isolation the climber looks to the vineyards and cornlands and cities on the plains. An ice peak near the pole and a range veiled in the steaming mists of the line are solitudes more retired and sanctuaries more inviolate. The common mountaintop lifts a man above the tumult of the lowlands, but these seem to carry him beyond the tumult of the world. End of chapter 4